Welcome to the Erectile Dysfunction Radio Podcast. This is the podcast dedicated to educating and empowering men to address erectile dysfunction, improve confidence, and enhance the satisfaction in their relationships. This podcast is brought to you by ErectionIQ.com. Learn more at ErectionIQ.com. Welcome to the Erectile Dysfunction Radio Podcast. I am Mark Goldberg, Certified Sex Therapist. I am deeply passionate about working with men like you to help resolve their ED. Today we are joined by Dr. David Keynes. Dr. Keynes is a board certified urologist practicing at a large hospital in the Boston, Massachusetts area, and he serves the patient population throughout New England. He is considered an expert in robotic surgery. This is an approach and a skill set that is used to treat a number of urologic cancers, including prostate cancer, the topic of today's episode. Dr. Keynes, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. So today we want to understand more about the impact of prostate cancer, its treatments on sexual dysfunction, in particular erectile dysfunction. So to get us started, can you tell us just a little bit about what is the prostate and does the prostate play a role in sexual function? Okay, sure. So yeah, the function of the prostate I think it's one of the most poorly understood glands in the whole body. Um, One way to think about it is from a urinary standpoint. So the bladder is a a hollow muscular uh, organ that stores urine. And when it squeezes, the urine flows out a tube called the urethra, which runs through the penis. But right at the exit of the bladder, almost like a donut, um, the prostate surrounds the whole urethra. So in fact, the channel where you pee runs right through the center of the prostate gland. And a normal prostate is about the size of a walnut. So we pee through the prostate, which gives you a sense of why the prostate can become problematic as men get older, even if they don't uh, develop prostate cancer. It can start to pinch the tube and cause urinary troubles. The function of the prostate has to do with ejaculation. So at orgasm, when a man ejaculates, The fluid that comes out is a mixture of fluid from the prostate, fluid from reservoirs called the seminal vesicles, which are attached to the prostate. That's where the word semen comes from. So about something like 65% of that fluid comes from the seminal vesicles. About 30% of it comes from the prostate. And then a tiny fraction comes from some glands uh, within the, the penis. A tiny fraction of that semen that comes out is the sperm itself. And the contribution from the prostate is to liquefy the ejaculate. So what do I mean by that? If the ejaculate clotted like our blood clots, then there'd be no hope of conceiving a a child because the sperm would stop swimming and would never make it to the egg. So whatever the prostate adds to that fluid keeps it liquid. Okay. So, so to get this straight, so prostate is involved in creating the ejaculate or parts of the ejaculate, and that obviously plays a role in reproductive health. In terms of yeah. the actual function when it comes to erections or the, the um, parts of the body that are involved in the ejaculatory process, does the prostate play a specific role in creating an erection, maintaining an erection, or in causing the ejaculation? Right. So um, that's a great question. So the prostate 
is simply involved in um, in adding a little bit of fluid to the ejaculate, and um, it's 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 a conduit through which the ejaculate goes. But it does not create an erection. It's not involved in the process of creating the erection itself. But uh, and we'll probably end up talking about this in a little while. The nerves and blood vessels that are responsible for creating erections run right next to the prostate. They sort of hug the prostate like there's two of them there and they hug the prostate like train tracks passing mm-hmm. right next to the prostate and they are stuck to each other. So and I imagine that that's going to, that's going to be very relevant for some of the treatments um, when it comes to prostate cancer before we get there. So Absolutely. I think, yeah. yeah, I think we've established what the role of the prostate is that it's not um, directly involved in sexual function, but it plays a role in creating the ejaculate and getting the ejaculate flowing down toward um, the penis and ultimately um, prepared for ejaculation. What is the prevalence of prostate cancer? I know that many people talk about this as um, almost an inevitability for many men as they age, Um, but can you give us some of the numbers? So it is one of the most common cancers in men. In fact, after skin cancer, it's probably the most common cancer in men. And one of the statistics that's often cited is one in six American men will end up developing prostate cancer in their lifetime. Um, but this this um, type of prostate cancer that people say, if you live old enough, you're probably going to get prostate cancer. We're talking about a very non-aggressive subtype of prostate cancer. So while that statement that a lot of people like to repeat is true, it's true, but it doesn't refer to the deadly, life-threatening kind of prostate cancer that we try to find early and that we try to treat. So to give you an idea of the scope, every year, somewhere around 240,000 men will be diagnosed with prostate cancer, and it's responsible for about 30,000 deaths. Okay, so it's 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 not a, a simple diagnosis. There's certainly some of the uh, stereotypes out there about prostate cancer being just a product of old age and something that you, uh, sometimes I hear people refer to it as something that you uh, don't die from, but you die with, which I understand may be true in some instances, but certainly prostate cancer can, you know, lead to, you know, big problems and, and death in some instances, if not true. Yeah. I'm, I'm really glad you brought that up. So, so let's, let's just review some of these phrases that you hear all the time. Um, everybody will eventually get prostate cancer. You die from something else. You don't die from prostate cancer. Prostate cancer is slow growing. The problem with those statements is they can be a little misleading because you shouldn't think about prostate cancer as being one thing. The way I explain it to my patients is prostate cancer is a spectrum from very non-aggressive on the one hand to lethal on the other. And over here, the non-aggressive side is the one that we say most people will get. It's non-threatening. And on the other hand, the threatening kind can sometimes be faster growing and is quite threatening and could take a man's life before they would otherwise have passed from something else. So if you think about it as a spectrum, I think it puts the whole um, disease into into perspective. Okay. And without getting too technical, 
Um, are these different types of cancers? One that tends to be very like non-aggressive and another type that is very aggressive or does the cancer, like, is it one type and then it has to be assessed what, where it is on that spectrum? It, it's the second scenario you mentioned. So it is one type of prostate cancer, not to get technical, but the, the medical name for it is adenocarcinoma. It's one type of prostate cancer that can be a, a spectrum of aggressiveness. Sometimes people get prostate cancer and it's a very wimpy kind of prostate cancer. It'll never harm them, even if they live to 110. And then that there's a, there's a different uh, form of, of aggressiveness that can be... Uh, you know, can take a man's life. Got it. Now, does the prostate cancer cause sexual dysfunction in and of itself? So no, the answer, the simple answer is no. In and of itself, prostate cancer does not cause uh, sexual function. But, you know, there's a huge psychological impact from receiving a, a diagnosis of prostate cancer. It's a very charged emotional and psychological event that can turn your life upside down. Um, any cancer diagnosis can do that. And so I see this in my patients. It may reduce uh, your sexual desire in the short term. It may reduce the frequency of sexual intercourse compared to your baseline because it's taking uh, 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 an emotional toll. But prostate cancer itself is not causing erectile dysfunction, except in some very uh, unusual late advanced cases where it's growing extensively out of the prostate, but that's that's incredibly unusual. So generally, generally speaking, if um, a person begins to experience sexual dysfunction, let's say prior to treatment, um, on the information, the news of a diagnosis, it's very likely that this is psychologically driven or psychogenic expression. Um, stemming from however that person is processing the news of and the information about this diagnosis. Yes, that, that's very well said. Uh, there's one other scenario that I think it's, is, is worth covering, which is prostate cancer diagnosis is made with a prostate biopsy. And in a prostate biopsy, needles are passed into the prostate, which can cause temporary swelling. And there is some fairly convincing data that a subset of men might get temporary erectile dysfunction from the biopsy itself until the swelling and the local healing happens. So I think we need to separate, you know, the cancer itself wasn't causing that, but the procedure to make a diagnosis in some men can lead to temporary erectile dysfunction. And I'm, I'm gathering that there is a physiological explanation for that. Yeah. I mean, we don't know exactly, but, uh, and this is just opinion, but the prostate does swell just like any part of the body. If we put a bunch of needles in it, if we did it in your arm, your arm would swell for a few days, uh, maybe a week or two. Um, so it's probably local swelling and inflammation. And again, the nerves are right next to the prostate. So, okay. So it, yeah. Potentially that presses on some of those nerves. Is that the idea? That, that's how I imagine it. Okay. But you think it's, it's, it's currently open to interpretation. There's no you know exact you know, definition for what happens here, but outside of the biopsy, the diagnosis itself should not, should not mean a physiological cause of long-term sexual dysfunction. That's correct. Okay. Now, what are some of the treatment options for prostate cancer? All right. So 
broadly speaking, you know, as I mentioned, prostate cancer is such a huge spectrum from, and use the word wimpy again, because I think it really resonates with my patients from very wimpy to highly aggressive. And on the less aggressive side of the spectrum, one of the main treatment options is just called active surveillance, which is a fancy way of saying close monitoring, where patients get periodic PSA blood tests, repeat biopsies, MRIs, repeat exams, things of that nature. So active surveillance for a huge proportion of men, it might even be up to two-thirds in some studies of men diagnosed with prostate cancer might have this wimpy form and surveillance is all that's required. If a cancer needs to be treated and your doctor can determine that, then we, we talk about prostate removal. It's called radical prostatectomy. Then there's radiation therapy and radiation comes in various different flavors. There's something called brachytherapy, which is radioactive pellets that are implanted into the prostate. Then there's another type where the radiation is delivered externally that can either be called IMRT or proton beam is another kind of uh, external radiation. And then uh, a third kind, which is delivered over a shorter period of time is called SBRT. So we have so far, active surveillance, prostate removal, radiation in various forms. And then the fourth category is, is called ablation. Without removing the prostate or giving radiation, you're killing the cancer cells by a, a various means. There are things like um, ultrasound waves or freezing it very cold or using lasers. Sometimes they ablate just part of the prostate that has the cancer that's called focal ablation. Sometimes they ablate the whole prostate. It's called whole gland ablation. A lot of these treatments, the ablate, ablative kind, are right now being done in the setting of a clinical trial. So they're being still tested. But some of these are available um, outside of clinical trials uh, as well. Okay, so, so just, to, just to summarize, you're saying most men, two-thirds, roughly speaking, will end up in a active surveillance protocol um, to, I guess, ensure that this is a uh, wimpy version of the cancer. It's not aggressively uh, spreading or causing problems. That's right. um, if it becomes necessary to treat or for the other third of men, um, there's three primary options, uh, two of which I think are readily available and accessible, um, which is radical prostatectomy, the removal of pieces of the prostate or maybe the whole prostate. You can weigh in if, that, if that's quite to the extent that this goes or various forms of radiation therapy. And the third option here is, I think what you termed ablation, which is a number of other approaches that do not involve radiation or full removal of the, the cancerous part of the prostate. Yes. So let me clarify just a couple of things. So uh, if the prostate's removed, the whole thing is removed, partial or removing just a piece of the prostate has been done it has uh, not had great outcomes, and so it's not a standard approach. Um, among all the different options that I listed, I would say that radiation and surgery are considered very standard treatments with decades of data behind them. And ablative technologies are newer and not yet standard of care. Uh, the last thing I want to highlight, since we're talking about options, 
If a man is diagnosed with prostate cancer, second opinions are very useful, very useful, because you want to make sure that if treatment's being recommended, that it really is needed. Uh, and maybe active surveillance is a better option. On the other hand, if you uh, are being advised to active surveillance, even getting another provider to agree can relieve a lot of anxiety. So there are a lot of reasons why in this arena, second opinions are are valuable because the treatment landscape is so broad. And, and what I'm gathering from that, and I was going to follow up with this question, is that this is a oftentimes a maybe a collaborative judgment call between um, surgeon or urologist and the patient. Um, in other words, I, I'm sure there are cases where it's very clear cut what needs to happen, um, but it sounds like there is a fair amount of judgment in terms of what is the best approach for not just the um, the cancer and its presentation, but also for this patient. That's exactly right, Mark. And you know, even in my own practice, as as balanced as I try to be when I talk to patients about their prostate cancer, I'm a surgeon, and I. And I'm, I'm deeply aware of my own biases. And so I, I insist that my patients see a radiation oncologist when they have a diagnosis so that I can make sure that they're hearing about radiation therapy from someone other than me. Um, occasionally, patients will decline, but I, I try to, I, I try at least higher than 90% of my patients who are diagnosed will also see a radiation oncologist uh, because exactly what you what you mentioned. That makes sense. So, you know, Dr. Keynes, it sounds like there are, let's call them two primary roads if treatment is going to proceed forward. With again, there's some other options that are in various stages of development. I wouldn't quite say experimentation, but certainly they're not standard of care at this point. So when it comes to these two roads, um, can you share what the impact or the potential impact becomes on sexual function, given that there are uh, these really important and I would assume sensitive nerve endings that are running right along the prostate, um, how would surgery or radiation potentially impact sexual function, in particular erections? Okay, great question. The truth is that any treatment for prostate cancer can negatively impact the erections. And this is a theme that's going to come up, I think, several times as we talk this is all about managing expectations. And the worst case scenario is for a patient to head into any treatment, whether it be surgery, radiation, or something else, with blinders on, thinking that everything's going to be fine. Okay. All of these treatments can impact direction. So, as and, and as we said before, but I'll reiterate this is because the nerves and blood vessels, in order to get an erection, you need an impulse from your central nervous system to get to the penis. And so those are nerves and you need blood vessels because an erection happens when the, the chambers in the penis get engorged with blood. So we need both of those to occur, nerve signals and blood vessels. And those are right next to the prostate. They're next door neighbors. If you think about, I, I explained to my patients like a clove of garlic. If you ever peeled a clove of garlic, there's layers around it. It's as if the clove itself is the prostate and the layers around it are blood vessels and nerves that impact erections. So let's talk about the surgical side. Even if 
those nerves are handled delicately and they are saved. We call that nerve sparing. Erections can still suffer or even not recover at all. Um, and what I tell my patients, patients will ask me, you know, well, what, how do we know what's going to happen? Study after study has borne out that there are essentially three factors that predict what's going to happen, whether the erections are going to recover. Two of those have nothing to do with the surgery. That's how old you are going into the operation and what your baseline sexual function is going in. Uh, you know, the average age of diagnosis of prostate cancer is around 68, and there's already a high prevalence of erectile dysfunction for any 68-year-old man, even if they've lived a healthy lifestyle. So not everyone's going into the operation with perfect erections. So age, degree of function, and the third factor is the degree of nerve sparing. So how much of those two railroad tracks, one on each side of the prostate, the surgeon preserves. Surgery and radiation both uh, impact erections negatively. Um, there was an article in the New England Journal uh, a number of years ago, it was a prominent uh, journal for doctors that uh, looked at this very carefully. In the first year after being treated with either surgery or radiation, in the surgery group, the erections declined to a much greater degree because there's been a surgical insult. And then most of those men recover. And so around a year, from a year to three, three years, let's say, there's um, a natural age-associated decline uh, after a recovery close to baseline. On the, on the radiation side, there's less of a decline in the first year. And then radiation tends to have a delayed effect on the nerves. So there's a slow decline after that. Uh, so to summarize, this is a little bit confusing if you can't look at the graphs I'm discussing, but by year three to five after surgery or radiation, they're fairly indistinguishable. But surgery is slightly worse very early on. Does that make sense? Yeah, that, that, that makes sense. It sounds like the the impact of the surgery and and I guess the invasiveness of that really kind of shocks the system and the recovery period like is a little bit maybe like dips down further and then it's a longer like incline out, but there isn't like a longer um, delayed effect with the radiation. But once you're three to five years out, it seems like you know, both, both horses are, are neck and neck at that point. Yeah, exactly. So typically um, when patients are reasoning through this question of, okay, I have a prostate cancer that needs to be treated. How do I choose between surgery and radiation? The erectile dysfunction aspect, um, once you have some distance from either treatment, are fairly similar. Um, now, how how badly do the do do treatments? Let's go back to surgery. Impact sexual function. It really depends on how you measure it. So, if I ask the question to a man, "Can you have a penetration quality erection? An erection that's firm enough for uh, penetration, I might get one answer. If I ask a, a much more detailed question like, are your erections the same as before surgery? I might get a different answer. So that's why when you look at studies, 
answering the question, well, what are the odds? You might get different answers depending on how, how detailed of an endpoint they're looking at. Um, but, but there are a few things that I, that I do tell patients. One is the, it's not like the penis goes numb. So the skin of the penis still has sensation. That's not impacted by surgery. Um, in the men who uh, do recover erections, and even in the men who don't, orgasm can happen, but not ejaculation. And I think maybe may worth for your listeners spending a little bit of time on that, on that question, because that's a huge source of confusion. What's the difference between orgasm and ejaculation? Aren't those the same thing? They're actually not. They're separate events. When you have an orgasm, it's a pleasurable sensation that is actually happening in your brain. And then there's a lot going on. There's some rhythmic contractions of pelvic muscles. And then the fluid that comes out is called ejaculation or emission. So because the prostate and those reservoirs called the seminal vesicles are removed, no fluid is going to come out. So there won't be ejaculation. But men do experience orgasm, the pleasurable sensation. And it can be hard for them to describe what that's like, but usually they just say it's different. I can't explain. It's different. Um, yeah, there, there certainly is a, a psychological conflation of the two because I think for uh, the overwhelming majority of men for most of their lives until they face something like this, uh, the two happen simultaneously. Right. Um, so even though they really are two separate processes, there is a physiological ejaculation that takes place. Um, that generally coincides with the uh, mental or experiential um, orgasm. Um, men assume that those two are one and the same. So did you ejaculate? Did you orgasm? It's all the, it's all the same question until those two processes have to be separated, like in the situation that you're describing. Exactly. Very well said. There's, there's one, um, there's a couple other things worth mentioning. One is, I said no fluid comes out at orgasm after surgery. There is a subset of men uh, who experience some urine that comes out at orgasm. And the medical name for that is climacturia. Uh, it doesn't happen to all men, but the actual event of orgasm from the point of view of your nervous system is a state of relaxation. And so some of those sphincter muscles will relax in some men, allowing a little bit of urine to, uh, to leak out. And do men describe that as a problem or do they describe that as a similar physical sensation to what they've experienced with ejaculation? In other words, is this viewed as a positive or a negative for the men who are having this experience? You know, it's fair. That's a great question. It's, it's highly variable. Um, some men are disturbed that this happens. and um, But I would say most men, if they are alerted to the possibility that it can occur and, they're part, and they have an open discussion with their partner, um, th that they're okay with it. Uh, because, if, you know, urine is, is sterile. It's not dangerous body fluid. And uh, in a supportive relationship, um, I would say the vast majority of my patients who experience this um, leakage of urine, a small amount of leakage of urine at orgasm are, are okay with it and their partners are as well. 
Now, you, you know, there are some patients who also get around it by, for example, wearing a condom to catch uh, some of that urine leaking. And everyone tries to do a diligent job of emptying their bladder if they know they're about to have intercourse. But again, I think, you know, like most things in medicine and surgery, knowing about these things beforehand and knowing that they exist is, is more than half the battle. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. So going back to the timeline, because I think this is going to be very relevant for our listeners. It sounds like whether a man goes through a nerve sparing surgery or radiation, there is very likely, if not a guarantee, that there will be an immediate impact on erections, at least acutely. Is that is that accurate? Yes. On the surgical side of it, it is very likely that at least initially there will be a, a major decline, if not a, a complete absence of erections right after surgery. There are some men whose erections are intact from, from surgery itself, but I try not to counsel patients about that. I would like that to be a pleasant surprise and not an expectation. Uh, the expectation should be that in the short term after surgery, there's going to be problems with the erection. Less so in the short term with radiation. The, if you imagine there's a dip, it's a small dip. It's not a big, uh, big drop-off. Okay. Now, in the recovery process, I imagine that there probably is some prohibition on sexual activity or at least intentionality with uh, trying to get an erection at least for a certain period of time. I don't know if, you know, what that would be. And then to my knowledge, and please educate, you know, myself and the listeners about this, uh, things kind of reverse. And then there, men should be working towards getting erections to try to get some of that blood flowing into the penis because I think it follows this very well-known use it or lose it model. So can you speak a little bit to that? Yeah. So let's take the first question. The first question is, is there a period of time after surgery where I, I basically say, don't engage in any sexual activity? So the, the, the caveat at the outset is every patient should ask their doctor, because if you ask 10 urologists this question, you might get 11 answers. So a lot of this is very particular to how your surgeon thinks about this. But in my practice, and I think this is fairly common, I don't make any specific restrictions because the, the, the truth is, from my vantage point, you can't harm anything. Uh, the first week after surgery, there's a catheter in. And patients don't want to, and you know, you really wouldn't be able to engage in sexual activity with the catheter in. So that first week, it's not, it's not happening. But once the catheter comes out after seven days, if a man is fortunate enough that the erections are working from that early stage, First of all, as we mentioned, that shouldn't be uh, an expectation. But if that occurs and the, and the patient has intercourse, I, I really don't think that any damage can be done. So I don't personally, in my practice, restrict any activity early on. Okay. And then in terms of men working toward encouraging blood flow to the penis to try to, I mean, I think it's called penile rehabilitation, if I'm not yeah. mistaken. That's right. um, when does that process start and how is that encouraged to help men work toward regaining optimal sexual function, uh, given whatever the parameters are post the surgery? All right. So 
The first, the first thing to mention is uh, it, it depends a lot on the how interested the patient is. Uh, let's just put that out there that not everybody comes to this question with the same degree of interest. And for some men at, at the age that they develop prostate cancer, sexual activity has become a lower priority in their life. They're still in a loving, supportive relationship, but uh, it manifests itself in different ways. Um, let's talk about the patients for whom it is a high priority. Uh, for those patients, penile rehabilitation really starts as soon as possible, I think. Um, and if not, even before surgery. I mean, that's really kind of the ideal situation. I, w I work in a group practice where uh, there's more than 15 urologists in the group. And uh, one of my partners, his entire practice is devoted to sexual medicine. And in an ideal situation, he has the ability to see a patient before, you know, at their baseline, before they have surgery. Because a lot of men, you know, who uh, haven't labeled themselves as having erectile dysfunction per se, do have an age-related decline and find that even at their baseline, for example, Viagra helps. And, you know, being able to address that before surgery can be very valuable. If that doesn't occur, because that's kind of an, an idea, somewhat of an aspirational scenario that all practices don't have, um, we try to get patients on either Viagra or Cialis on a recurring basis pretty soon after the catheter is removed. Um, and sometimes we add in a vacuum pump device and we tell patients every day or every other day, make sure the penis is engorged with healthy, healthy blood. Our thought process here is that, um, you know, when you're healthy and young, you have nighttime erections. That's one of the ways that the body keeps the tissue in the penis healthy. After surgery, if the erections stop, the lack of that healthy blood flow can start to cause scar tissue in the penis. So let's say the nerves are recovering in the background. Uh, once they recover, they may the whole process may be sort of altered by the fact that the, the penis now has scar tissue in it because during that waiting period of recovery, it didn't have healthy blood flow. Mm. So we try to get some kind of regimen of getting healthy blood flow in there as soon as possible for the motivated patient. Okay. So if I'm understanding correctly, there, there is a post, um, at least surgical, maybe this applies to radiation as well, where there is, you know, for the patient who is interested or, you know, highly invested, um, in trying to regain uh, sexual function, uh, there is a, a process of follow-up um, involving trying to rehabilitate the penis with getting healthy blood flowing through to avoid scar tissue and um, you know, other damage of that sort. Is that correct? That's correct. Okay. What are the rates of men who, um, let's say, started off with a, a, a baseline where um, they were able to gain an erection, maintain an erection without the use of uh, uh, Viagra or Cialis that are able to fully regain sexual function post-treatment. Okay. Um, so the there are numbers out there uh, that are in the range of 
80 to 90%, 90, 95% plus chance of recovering erectile function. And I, that's not what I tell my patients. I don't, at least in my experience and others, when, when high quality questionnaires are given to patients and you, and, and you, you actually look at the data, the numbers are not that rosy. Okay. So let me tell you how I counsel my patients. Patients can either have no problem or a small problem after surgery or a big problem. So let's just first define that a little bit better. If a patient has no problem after surgery, that means without taking any pills, they can get an erection that's firm enough for intercourse and have intercourse. If they have a small problem, they might need to take Viagra or Cialis. We consider that a small problem because, you know, taking a pill is, although maybe inconvenient, is not very invasive of a treatment. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, and it's about 50%. 50% of patients will have no problem or a small problem. And the other 50% will have a big problem. Meaning even with Viagra or Cialis, there's no erection. Or they mean not, they're getting no no response, not even at I mean, times. You know, they, may, they may get some response, but not sufficient for penetration. Okay. So we consider that a big a big problem because in order to keep trying to get the patient where they want to be, we have to get more, things need to get a little bit more complicated. Um, and the solutions are a little bit less spontaneous and more involved. So just as an example, um, there are suppositories, little pellets that can be put inside the urethra itself, something called Muse, for example. Um, Stepping up from there, injectable medications. Penile injections is a very effective way of creating a usable erections, a usable erection. Uh, the needle is a tiny needle, similar to what a patient with diabetes would use to give themselves an insulin shot. And the, we teach the patient how to uh, inject themselves at the base of the penis through the skin. The injection is not through the opening where you pee. It's at the base of the penis, and we figure out the dose that is enough to cause an erection. So if injections work, that means that that, that needs to be done on demand. In other mm -hmm. words, when you have intercourse, injection needs to be done, and then you, you can have intercourse. If we go back to those numbers that I talked about initially, the 50% of men who have a big problem, I would say just as a rule of thumb, about half of those men will respond to injections. And, and just to clarify, are they, are those men on injection therapy in perpetuity, or is this part of a big problem that injections are part of a recovery, let's say back toward uh, medication? And that's probably a very nuanced question. Yeah, that um, is a nuanced question. I would say, um, Let's think about this as the final, let's think about this as the final answer. Um, when all recovery has taken place, Got it. half of men are going to have no problem, small problem. Half of men are going to have big problem. And some of those will be salvaged with injections. Now, since we're getting into the nuances, some of the men that have no problem or a small problem may initially in the first 
few months after surgery, needed injectable medications to while things were recovering in the background. Um, but to, but get, an, to get to get the process started, but they, but they end up in the small problem category. There, yes, there are men exactly. There are men who needed the injections initially and then were able to wean off of them. But this is why what I want to highlight here is really important that. I mean, there are there are your, plenty of urologists who feel comfortable with the full spectrum of handling all of this. Mm-hmm. More commonly, it's a team approach with uh, with someone who just specializes in sexual medicine. We used to not be so proactive and aggressive. We used to sort of wait. Let's wait and see if Viagra is going to work. And months would go by, and then we would only start injection therapy more than a year after surgery. And, you know, things have changed. Mm-hmm. In the last five to 10 years, we, we don't wait. We, we, we think about it differently. We think about it, listen, let's get you having a usable erection now. And I imagine that uh, patient dropout rates with those longer windows probably were a lot higher because, um, it, you know, with, without that support and those, you know, check-ins and, and, a, and a process in place, just kind of waiting it out. I imagine a lot of men do just lose hope and give up, uh, yeah. has a negative impact on their uh, partnered sexual activity if they're in a relationship, but even on their solo activity, uh, I could imagine that that was not very helpful. Um, I'm also aware that, that um, um, and again, hopefully this is something you're, that, that, that you're saying is changing and there's more of a collaborative approach to working on this, but, um, you know, men have, have um, you know, reported to me that they've felt like the process just kind of ended post-surgery. Like they didn't feel like they had a clear, uh, clear guidance or clear approach on how to go about doing this. They sometimes were referred to another urologist to deal with the post-care, but it felt like there wasn't a continuity of the process. And it sounds like you're saying the field is 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 trying to shift and adapt toward that need for men to have it as a, a continuous streamlined process so that it's not just you know them kind of trying to figure it out on their own or looking for another specialist to help with that side of things. Yeah, I mean that that is such a great point. I I can just tell you in my neighborhood, um, I see things changing to be more collaborative, more aggressive early on, and I mean aggressive with the patient's permission. Aggr- you know, aggressive penile rehabilitation mm-hmm. in a man who wants to recover function. Yeah, that's. But my but my sincere hope, and I got to be honest with you, Mark, I I, I I'm hoping that there are some people listening to this right now who are at the diagnosis stage and they haven't yet decided what to do. And armed with the information we're providing today, the patients need to be their own advocate. And you know, you, you're, you're interviewing your surgeon, right? And you're not just trying to decide what treatment you wanna have for your prostate cancer, but who and which team do, do I wanna be associated with? Mm-hmm. And so of all the questions that everyone knows they're supposed to ask their surgeon, how many of these have you done and things like that? How about what's your plan for penile rehabilitation? Do you work on this by yourself or as a team? And, you know, am I going to be, what's my regimen going to be? When am I going to start on pills? If the pills don't work, are we going to do injections? Who's going to manage that? And you'll know right away by the answers if it's, if it's part of the routine for the team, which I hope, and I think that's quite common around the country, or 
the, the answer doesn't seem that well thought out, and uh, maybe it's it's time to interview a second, third opinion. Yeah, I think that's a that's a tremendous point because you know in, in the immediate you know shock of a cancer diagnosis, totally understandable to me that a patient is really focused on what is the best way to eliminate the cancer and thinking about the downstream implications and what the the long-term outlook of the long-term process is with the team that you're working with is something that I imagine many patients wouldn't even think to bring up at an initial consultation or um, really like with the team to ask about that. But it, I, I think it becomes a major quality of life question. Absolutely. Um, because Absolutely. This, yeah. I mean, you know, you're you're shell shocked when you get a cancer diagnosis. Your your world gets turned upside down. People are giving you information. You may only absorb a third of it because your head is racing, you're spinning, you can't quite process it all. But you know, the good news is, and obviously I can't make sweeping generalizations, but the cancer story for most prostate cancer patients is a happy is has a happy conclusion. Okay. So given that perspective, you really should be focusing on the quality of life issues because those are the things that you're going to be dealing with for decades to follow. Again, the cancer situation is usually a good outcome, whether you choose radiation or surgery. And so if you, if you can just try to have that perspective, Mm -hmm. It gives you the freedom and the bandwidth in your head to really focus on these other things, which are going to determine your your happiness. Yeah. In other words, Dr. Kanz, if, if I could summarize that, it sounds like what you're saying is um, don't pop the champagne too early. It's not that your prognosis uh, isn't um, likely to be good. Most of these cases do end up with that, with a great prognosis, a great outcome. Yeah. Um, it's just that there's more to the story than just the cancer. There is a larger quality of life issue that patients should be aware of if they are at that pre-surgical or pre-intervention stage. Um, and just a, a number of questions that you raised that that patients should feel comfortable to ask their surgeon about when they're in that interviewing process. How is the aftercare dealt with? What's the penile re- uh, rehabilitation process like? Um, is there a team for that and whatnot? Um, because a lot of times you're saying it's more about the quality of life and less about the um, treatment of the cancers. Thankfully, there's a lot of options for the treatments that are you know, very often successful, um, safe, um, and it's a quality of life question that men should be aware of as well. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. Um, one other thing that I think is worth uh, talking about there, there's a few. If you want, we can talk about what a just a regular recovery is like from surgery, just apart from in in broad strokes. But you know, when we meet with patients and we talk about the risks of surgery, there's one that you know, mea culpa. Sometimes we overlook. There's so many things to talk about, and that's loss of penile length. Um, it doesn't happen to all men. It does happen to some men after surgery. Um, we're not sure exactly why the length of the penis may shorten a little bit after prostatectomy. Um, simplistically, sometimes we think that it has something to do with when we reattach the bladder to the urethra. Um, but I think it's more complicated than that. It may have to do with resting blood flow to the flaccid or not erect penis. Um, so it's important to keep in mind that that is something that can occur. 
There's one study that suggested that that length may return to the pre-op length by around a year, but that's also part of the reason for penile rehabilitation. Things like vacuum pumps and taking pills, getting that penis stretched and with healthy blood flow um, may help with that. Um, Another important piece of information for our listeners. Um, so Dr. Keynes, I, I think there's probably a lot more to talk about, uh, when it comes to the prostate, prostate cancer, especially because, um, again, one in six, that's a large number that really is. That means many yeah. men over the course of lifespan are going to be impacted by this. Like you pointed out for some, that's going to have a, a, a detrimental effect on, um, their, um, sexual function, perhaps just acutely or potentially long-term for other men. That's just not where they are in terms of the priorities um, in their life. So even if there are sexual implications, it will matter less. But um, I have to imagine that there will be over you know the time that this podcast is you know listened to um, for the coming years, uh, potentially millions of men who are impacted uh, both with prostate cancer and the potential potential sexual uh, function implications for them. So um, I think it's really important that we get this podcast out to our listeners. Dr. Keynes, thank you very much for joining us. And uh, we look forward to hosting you for a future episode where we can you know, talk more in depth about some of these areas. Thank you so much for having me. It was so much fun. Thanks for listening to the Erectile Dysfunction Radio Podcast. For more information on today's topic and understanding how the mind impacts erectile dysfunction, please visit ErectionIQ.com. That's ErectionIQ.com.